Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our amazing lineup of creators. Welcome back to Straight White American Jesus. We are once again here at the Summit for Religious Freedom in Washington, D.C., uh, at the Washington Plaza Hotel, and we're joined today by someone who uh, just has done a lot in a short amount of time, and that is Rain and Meow. So, Rain, thanks for joining us. Of course, so nice to be here. Let me tell you, tell folks about you. You're about to graduate from WashU in St. Louis. A couple weeks left. You are a gay Asian son of immigrants, and that informs all the work you do, including your academic life. You were an AU student organizer and a two-term student body president, which is amazing. You're passionate about LGBTQI plus rights, racial equity, social justice. You've worked on campus to institutionalize pronouns and student government, push for diversified faculty and staff, expanded information and access to condoms and prep, and secured a menstrual products program in university restrooms. Just incredible stuff. Let's start here. You've worked hard to raise awareness and acceptance for LGBTQIA plus folks, women, and you've as I just mentioned, fought to expand access to condoms, menstrual products, general neutral bathrooms, so on and so forth. However, Christian purity culture, Christian nationalists would have us never speak of any of those issues, much less address them. And there's just so much religious bigotry surrounding sex and sexuality and gender and min minority gender identities. How would you, or how do you speak to those that might not agree with you on the importance of such initiatives as somebody who's been student body president in a place like St. Louis? What have you developed as strategies for these kinds of conversations? I think about this question a lot because I think the future for comprehensive sex education, for access to menstrual products, access to condoms, requires people from all backgrounds to be able to recognize that these are questions of health. And getting access to menstrual products in our restrooms, for example, shouldn't be a partisan issue. It should be an issue of, do we believe every single person deserves the dignity to be able to menstruate and be able to have tampons and pads and liners. So when I talk about these issues, I don't try to talk about them in political terms. I try to talk about them in health terms, and that tends to resonate with people a lot easier, even though there is usually some ignorance around some of these issues. And that's the core of what I want to be able to dispel, is to recognize that I don't think people are innately hateful. I don't think that people just want to deprive others of their human rights but they want to develop a deeper understanding of some of these issues. And people who are often on the other side are people who either don't know that much about this information or 
for whom their own set of ideology is the driving factor and doesn't want to be disturbed by competing facts and by other information that can be presented to them. So in the context of your question, I think the way that we get through to people who disagree with us is to focus on the areas that we can all agree on. In Missouri, for example, we were able to get Medicaid expansion just a few years ago because whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you want health care. You want affordable health care. And that's the language that I've always focused on when talking about everything from food insecurity in our schools to talking about menstrual products on our campuses. This is at its core about safety. It's about health. And we know the data tells us that the states that have, you know, abstinence-only sex education, for example, have the highest rates of teen pregnancy, have the highest maternal mortality rates. And those are all issues that we need to challenge. So when we focus on the facts, focus on the health, I think we can reach people of all different backgrounds. Let's stay on healthcare. And let's talk about, you just talked about areas where folks can agree and everyone wants healthcare. And yet what we hear almost every day are renewed attacks on gender affirming care. How in your mind is gender affirming care for trans folks a matter of healthcare? You know, there are, there are people in the country who would say, that's not healthcare. At best, it's some sort of optional set of uh, procedures and or ongoing care that one chooses or something worse. And yet, I think for a lot of us, uh, that's just not true. We know that's just not true. What we know is, right, gender affirming care is health care. How do you think about it in your own work and how do you uh, help others to understand that? Well, we talk about this a lot in Missouri. Missouri is, let's just say, not well known for their LGBTQIA inclusion. And a lot of it, like I said earlier, is driven by ignorance on some of these issues. The way that I would explain this to someone who knows nothing about gender affirming care, about trans people, is to start off from the fact that being trans is a part of your identity. And gender affirming healthcare helps to address the number one crisis in the community, which is a lack of social support and inclusion that leads to mental health issues like depression, anxiety, and most tragically, suicidal ideation. We know that an inordinate number of trans students are suffering because their states, their schools, their parents are not allowing them to fully embrace who they are as people. And gender-affirming care offers the very real and necessary health support for these students, for adults, that allows them to experience gender euphoria when they're able to receive care that allows their gender to align with their gender identity. So I, I think that when we're talking about this issue, the number one problem that I want to address is with suicide. And the root of suicide is with rejection, it's with ignorance, and it's with hatred against trans people. So the best thing that we can do as allies, as someone who is cisgender, is to understand that gender-affirming care is about providing that access to gender euphoria, that access to gender alignment, and the human right of being recognized as who you are as a person, um, and to be able to have that right be recognized. Well, and just staying on that theme, your work at or on campus has been has included normalizing using one's preferred pronouns, and it, it seems to me over the last two years, pronouns have become this target for the American right. It's something that they will mock. It's something that they'll make fun of. But I think staying on the themes that you just discussed, how how. Are, are using one's preferred pronouns an issue of the kinds of acceptance that you've discussed? 
And what are strategies to explain that to those that perhaps just don't understand? You've talked about people being ignorant and not hateful. What are ways to sort of give them a, an understanding of why this is actually really crucial? It's such an odd point of contention for me, because if I told you that I have a name, you wouldn't say, I refuse to call you by that name. That would be a ridiculous thing to say to someone. Um, and we know that people change their names. They change their surnames. They change their first names. And we seem to understand that addressing someone by their name is an issue of respect. And I think that addressing someone by their pronouns is an issue of respect. The, the reason why I think this is becoming a huge issue on the right is because people are trying to frame this as some type of pernicious attempt to like racist people or like destroy gender. I, I don't I really know the narrative that people are using, but I know that this has become galvanizing because for a bunch of people who don't understand the core of what this conversation is about, which is about respect and recognition, they see this as something that's new and that challenges them. And I do believe that society is shifting, but we have the option to either try to hold on to a past that has not been inclusive or we have the option to learn about this new future that is the here and now. And I am someone who uses he, him, his pronouns, but every single person uses pronouns, right? Even if you're cisgender, you have pronouns, right? So this, one of the things I've seen is the conservatives who will go on television and be like, my pronouns are kiss my ass. My pronouns are, you know, they'll make the same joke over and over again. It's like a really odd joke i think because it's like no you have pronouns people refer to you by pronouns so we all know that there are pronouns and we also all know that there are gender neutral pronouns because if you don't know someone's gender you say i don't know what they identify as so we the idea that pronouns are somehow new and radical is um i i, I think a fallacy and what is more accurate is that there are a lot of people who haven't thought about pronouns in a long time and now they're being forced to ask and confront pronouns which at, at a deeper level is asking you to confront and question the notion of gender. Gender is a social construct. It is socially constructed in terms of how we recognize and acknowledge one another. And that is what I think is probably more controversial and requires more conversation and dialogue is how do people conceptualize gender and how can we help people understand gender to be more than just these very essentialized notions of there's only two genders, right? Like, how can we move beyond that conversation to truly embrace the full spectrum of identities that exist? My favorite is there's no pronouns in the Bible, which... Constitution. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if that, you know, when it comes to the Bible, I don't know if that's like a biblical illiteracy problem or just a basic grammar problem, but uh, <laughs> there's a lot of pronouns in the Bible. So there are, um, indeed. All right. So here's the thing. We've talked a lot about mm -hmm. condoms, menstrual products, We've talked about healthcare. We've talked about gender affirming care as healthcare. We've talked about pronouns. You're you're a former student fellow. Very non controversial. Yeah, series no, no, of subjects. just light stuff. <laughs> light stuff. No big deal. How's the weather today? Who won the football game? But you're a former fellow here at at, at Americans United. Mm -hmm. So there are probably people listening, thinking, "Hey, that all of these issues that Rainin is is concerned with and fighting for, great." My question for you is, in your mind, how do those things line up with the fight for separation of church and state. You know, what what does one have to do with the other? Absolutely. I can start off by saying that I think a lot of young people now are plugged into this issue because they recognize that at the root of a lot of the other social movements that are existing, the pro-choice movement, LGBTQIA equality movement, at the root of these restrictions and these problems is 
a very small and radical subset of Christian nationalists who are trying to impose a very puritanical view of what a moral life is. And increasingly, our country is becoming more diverse. We have different religious backgrounds, different moral backgrounds, different ideological backgrounds, and increasingly people reject this notion that getting an abortion makes you an awful person. One in four women in America will get an abortion in their lifetime. And on a side note, my favorite question to get is people are like, well, would you, would you be okay if your mother aborted you? And I'm always like, yes, that's what it means to be pro-choice, right? So an abortion in LGBTQI identity, if you look at Generation Z, according to the Pew Research Center, over 19% of Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ. The vast majority of those people, the vast majority of the increase actually comes from people who are openly bisexual now. And it's not because suddenly it's the cool thing to do, because we're no longer repressing it and forcing people to confine themselves to these very narrow and puritanical boxes of what constitutes moral sex. The idea that you cannot have any premarital sex is something that I think a vast majority of young people reject as a notion. But the reason of why these issues of sex education, of LGBTQIA equality, of abortion access, of freedom over our own bodies is a religious, um, it is a question of religious freedom and of the separation of church and state is because the root of why these human rights are being taken away is because a small subset of Christian nationalists want to impose their very specific conservative worldview onto everybody else. And that is the religious justification constantly used for anti-trans legislation, anti-LGBTQ legislation, anti-abortion legislation that fundamentally is taking away human rights, taking away health care, and taking away people's ability to be free in this country, to be free in who they are, to be free and to be recognized as who they are, to be free to get the health care they desire. And I want to bring it back to freedom because that, I think, is a universal value that Americans can understand. We all want to be free. But are you free if you live in a country in which the right to make decisions about your own body are not guaranteed? Are you free if you are unable to make healthcare decisions with your doctor? Are you free if you cannot truly be who you are? And as a country that prides itself in freedom, I would ask people who disagree with me to seriously consider these questions of how far does your freedom go and to whom does it apply to if you actually want to see a country with freedom? I'm really glad you brought up that theme of freedom. There's a there's a great book called The Flag and the Cross by Phil Gorski and Sam Perry. And one of the things they talk about there is that for Christian nationalists, the only way that they feel as if they can experience freedom is if the social order is in its proper alignment. And if it's not, they feel like they have the sole authority to use violence to put it back that way. And what they never consider and what what never gets through is that that outlook means that there is no freedom for anyone who does not fit into that very narrow of their social order. Mm -hmm. And so the promise of freedom is limited to only a very few. And if those very few mm -hmm. are able to uh, instill that vision in our laws, in our policies, uh, in our institutions, then freedom for the many and freedom for all is not something available in this country. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're left with, as you're saying, a small minority uh, leveraging a very exclusionary understanding of American society on the rest of us. And um, that just doesn't work. Let's think about you're a, a, a former student body president. You're somebody who um, seems very interested in politics and government. Uh, do you see government as a way that uh, can help 
bring about social change? Do you have faith in that? You're Gen Z. Come on, there's people listening. They're like, Gen Z doesn't, they don't even believe in these things anymore. Come on. <laughs> so how does that look from you, where you sit? Well, I will speak on behalf of my generation and saying that we're definitely disillusioned with some of the issues that we're experiencing. Um, we have a very grim outlook on things like being the first generation to live shorter lives than their parents and being the generation that will never be able to afford and buy a house and being the generation that's inheriting a staggeringly unequal economy. I think there are absolutely issues that my generation is disillusioned by. But I don't think that disillusionment leads to a complete disillusionment and rejection of government. And I say this because I'm studying political science. It would be a little silly if I was studying a field that I had absolutely no faith in. I do believe government has the capacity to create change. And on the local level in St. Louis is one of those amazing places in which there is incredible hubs of innovation, in which there is immense creativity in which there is immense passion to be able to uplift and preserve these human rights. And I think all across the country, there are people who are working through local and state governments to be able to fortify and protect these basic human rights. For example, recently, Minnesota decided to sign a law into, into place that was going to make their state a safe haven for trans people. This is a great indicator of the movement that, on the other side of the aisle, were able to use government and leverage government to protect these fundamental human rights and be able to protect everyone's human rights across the board. I think at its core, government can absolutely be used for horrific, terrible things. But government can also be used to uplift human rights through policies like non-discrimination. We can also protect human rights of healthcare, of housing, of food, if we're able to use government to provide these public services. And we're able to fight for a common good and build stronger communities if we're able to see our own participation in government as a part of our responsibility as citizens in a democracy and as activists trying to fight for a more just and equitable world. As we close here, last question, I think I'm, I'm thinking about what gives you hope. Uh, you spent the last couple of years in St. Louis. St. Louis is a city that has suffered from public divestment. It's a place that has suffered from just vast amounts of income inequality. There are racial divisions. There is a history of, of segregation, so on and so forth. And yet I know that what things look like from afar are not what they look like on the ground. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that you are connected into many networks of organizers, of young people who are working towards change. So what's one thing that just gives you hope about the future? St. Louis gives me so much hope. And yes, obviously St. Louis has its problems. I've studied a lot of them. But St. Louis also recently elected their first black woman mayor, who is an incredible progressive Tashara Jones, who I've had the opportunity to work on her campaign to support her and to see some of the important work that she's done. And we elected a really progressive president for the Board of Aldermen, Megan Green, who actually is one of my professors and under whom I've studied a lot about how local government can be this incredible beacon of change. There are amazing union leaders. There is a rich history of interracial radical union organizing. And before union organizing, um, there was a rich history of abolitionist organizing against slavery in Missouri. So I think that St. Louis gives me a lot of hope because it represents the future. It represents generations, people who are reeling from the generational traumas of racism, of colonialism, of violence, and standing together united for basic human rights like abortion, LGBTQIA equality. We have led our state in passing anti-discrimination statutes. Recently, after the um, complete banning of abortion in Missouri, St. Louis started an over $1 million fund to be able to help people access abortion in Illinois. 
and to provide St. Louisans that opportunity to travel across state lines. We are often restricted by the state government. I won't deny that. But we are also incredibly creative. We persevere. We are passionate about, and we are standing in solidarity with one another. And being in St. Louis for these last four years deepened my understanding of the word solidarity. And it gives me hope because I think we represent what many people in this country are also recognizing that the current systems that exist do not work. And we cannot sit down and accept while a very small and fringe and radical minority are trying to completely change our nation and deprive massive amounts of people of their right to read books, of their right to get health care, of their right to make decisions about their own bodies, and about their right to have the human dignity and respect honored that every single person deserves. Last question. What year do you think you will become our first Asian American president? <laughs> and can I donate to the campaign now or do I need to wait? You were very kind. I am just focused on my next steps. Okay. And <laughs> um, I don't know if that's necessarily the path I'm going to go down, but um, I definitely want to be working in policy and advocacy work. So wherever I work in the future, I hope that you will donate. All right. All right. And I'll be sure to send you that link. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Well, tell us before we go, Raynan, mm -hmm. uh, where, where uh, places people can link up with you and all you're doing online, uh, website, what, what's yeah, the best way? Absolutely. Oh, I didn't even think about this question. You can... Email me if you'd like. Um, my email is rainandmiao, R-A-N-E-N-M-I-A-O at wustl.edu, W-U-S-T-L dot E-D-U. So I would love to hear from you. would love to chat about anything that we discussed here. And I would especially love to chat with people who disagree with me and want to talk about that because I'm a big fan of being able to have conversations with people across the aisle. I've, I feel like mastered that skill in Missouri for four years. Um, clearly, my views aren't necessarily shared by everyone in the state legislature or in the state, but... I find the conversations incredibly valuable. So I hope people will reach out. That's great. Well, thank you for joining us. Thanks for taking the time to sit down with us. You have a busy schedule here at the summit, but I'm just really grateful for all your insight and hope we can have you back on the show at some point to talk some more. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.